日本史学習に最高にもってこいのサイトサムライアーカイブスポッドキャストへようこそ美しい自然にあふれてる縄文時代から波乱万丈な幕末まで全時代を網羅して日本史の隅から隅まで一緒に語り合いましょうでは早速日本史の世界へ Hey, welcome again to the Samurai Archives podcast.、Oh, always exciting.、Uh, today we are coming to you live from the Japan Studies Association 18th Annual Conference. Live, pre recorded. Live, live via podcast. As always. <laughs>、uh, at the Hawaii Tokai International College in Honolulu, Hawaii. Today,、uh, this is Chris. With me, as always, is Travis and Nate.、Yeah. Hello. And today we have a special guest. This is Allison Rapp. Coming、Hi. to us from the University of Minnesota, who is also presenting or has presented at the conference today.、Mm-hmm. Excellent job, by the way. Ah, thank you. Yes. Oh, would you like to give just a brief introduction? Sure.、Um, I'm Allie Rapp, and I'm currently a grad student at the University of Minnesota. Did my undergrad at Augsburg College, which is about three blocks away from the U, which means I moved a whole heck of a lot、nice. distance away. I'm a, I'm a world traveler. Yeah. It's Allie Rapp. Um, but um, I don't know if we'll talk about it later. Well, but you've been, been to Tokyo. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been to Tokyo. Hawaii. I've been to Hawaii. <laughs> I've been to Iowa. I haven't even been to Iowa. <laughs> Compared to Tokyo and, and Hawaii, Iowa might be exotic <laughs> for a certain perspective. Yeah, yeah. So, so. that's me. Okay, well, today we're going to do sort of just a roundtable discussing the various things that we saw at the conference up until this point. Which I think we're pretty much finished with the conference anyway, are we?、Yeah. Um, all the, like, all the seminars, presentations, all the and official right, stuff. Yeah, business、here. meeting and a d i n n We just got the party tonight.、Banquets. Shindig, little, little get down, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> free beer for lunch. That's how good it's going to be awesome. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay, well, I, I guess we'll just kind of start at the start.、Uh, who would like to begin just talking about one of the,、uh, you know, any of the seminars that you started with? The conference started with、um, Christine Llanos, ch-、uh, she's the chair of the、uh, Department of Anthropology here at the University of Hawaii at Manoa.、Mm-hmm. Um, and she was the plen- plenary speaker. I'm not sure what the word plenary means. I meant to look it up, I didn't look it up.、Um, Person who talks first because they're important. But not quite as important as a keynote speaker? That's something、mm. like that, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, so Dr. Llanos, who's always entertaining to listen to,、um, gave a talk about. Is that sarcastic? Or? No, she is. It's、oh, not、okay. sarcastic. She is. She always, I don't know, I miss no, she's always studying, she's always doing interesting projects. She just、uh, curated an exhibit、oh. um, downtown called Obama, No Obama.、Uh, did、yeah. you guys see this?、Mm-hmm. I, I heard of it, I did not go see、oh, it. I went to the opening, it was fantastic. It was all about、um, Obama City in Fukui Prefecture, which has been just crazy for、oh, the、sure. last like, five years or so, <coughs> making you know, We Love Obama t shirts and, and all these kinds of things. And、mm-hmm. like plush Obama fig- characters. Yeah, all yeah. kinds、Playing、of things. Playing on, on、so、pl- US President Obama? Barack Obama. I'm going to start calling my,、yeah. um, my <laughs> yeah. president. My Obama teddy bear. And they, <laughs> and they brought,、um, they have their own hula troops because obviously from, because President Obama's from Hawaii. <laughs> so there's some kind of weird connection there. Anyway, so she's always, int-、uh, Dr. Yano is always looking at these kinds of different topics. But she's been, she's about to publish a book about Hello Kitty. And so she gave a talk about Hello Kitty. And I, I can't help but feel like, maybe, maybe it's just because I'm not a girl, but I just kind of feel like, no, I'm serious. I look at Hello Kitty and I think this is, did we have this conversation? I had this conversation、maybe. with somebody. But,、uh, we were is, sitting next to each other. This is a, a separate, like it's obviously a very major, very visible part of Japanese glo-、uh, soft power, you know,、um, and, and presence in the world, <coughs> global marketing, whatever. But it, to me, to my mind, is a completely separate thing from like, if you go to Akihabara, Mm-hmm. And you walk up and down these. Yes, you know, yeah, you I would agree. All kinds of anime, video、mm-hmm. games, J pop, J rock, 
that's not Hello Kitty, and right. that's what I think of when I think of Japanese soft power or right. Japan cool mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I, I would agree um, in basically the, 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 the idea that Hello Kitty definitely creates a larger image outside of Japan than it does inside as far as being the icon of Japanese animation or Japanese, right. not animation even, but like character. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, but I mean, even, out, even outside of Japan, because if you just talk to random people about like what aspects of Japanese <sighs> pop culture they like best, right? I, I mean, I don't know. Hell Kitty is maybe so uh, ubiquitous that it doesn't count anymore. I, I, I don't know. But yeah. it, but is that only among people who? I mean, maybe maybe Hello Kitty is most powerful with people who don't have any other kind of knowledge of. Japanese hot power, right? That's so, so talking to anime fans, for example, they might say, "Well, I, I, I couldn't give a rat's poop about Hello Kitty, but I love Samurai Champloo, right? right or right. I love insert the, video game." Uh, well, right? it's kind of like she was saying towards the end that that you know, Sanrio sales, the, the parent company of Hello Kitty, have been down mm-hmm. um, because it's kind of oversaturated become and and that would be the thing you know anybody that you're talking about who <coughs> knows something about Japan you're probably right is going to yeah, move beyond right. Hello Kitty and Hello Kitty is going to be so ubiquitous mm-hmm. and so well known that it's not it doesn't carry any cool cachet mm-hmm. so I, I I do think that that's a little bit of a, of a problem with her using Hello Kitty as kind of the face of mm-hmm. quote unquote cool Japan this is not quite so cool anymore um well it's not quite so cool anymore and it's and for people who are actually you know, seeking cool. Uh, but that said, I mean, it is probably one of the things that's most well known mm-hmm. outside of Japan. We should probably define soft power too okay. mm. for the listeners. Okay, so um, soft power is the concept that, you know, you have, you know, various contexts, economics, international relations, and, and, and so forth, where instead of trying to influence other countries by traditional means, such as political like pressure, coercion, coercion <laughs> Uh, Economic sanctions, military invasion, uh, yeah, Uh, things like that. You do it. We'll invade them with uh, plush characters. That's right. (laughs) You do it, you know, with cultural means. So, uh, you know, you could throw in uh, like United States McDonald's or Mm -hmm. um, other things like that. That would be, you know, Hollywood movies are Mm -hmm. are a form of American soft power. And probably the most uh, referred to soft power. Certainly, Mm -hmm. certainly. I mean, you know. We make these movies, they go to other countries. Um, people see that as a representation of America for good or for bad. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, people see that and they reject it as, you know, not as another consistent reason with to their... send in suicide bombers. Well, sure. But, but when it comes um, to Japan, I think in particular the idea that through the, um, the appeal of manga, anime, Hello Kitty, etc., uh, people from around, around the world, especially in Korea and China, who are who then become fans of anime that right. like uh, then dislike Japan less? Yes, mm-hmm. and to the point where the Japanese government has actually made this official policy where they have a quote unquote anime ambassador, Doraemon, right. the robot cat from the cartoon series, and yeah. um, other characters have been given, you know, official roles in spreading this as a as a way to. Um, and it's interesting because she didn't really touch on it. Uh, she did a little bit, but not, you know, as much as I would have liked. How it's a means to soften the image of Japan mm-hmm. mm. away from the previous, uh, you know, images of militarism, mm-hmm. and uh, and and even uh, like if you look at the, you know U.S. perceptions of Japan in the 1980s, mm-hmm. where. Oh, yeah. 
oh crap, they're going to buy everything. <laughs> um, you know, this is a way to kind of still project, you know, get Japan into the conversation, mm-hmm. get Japan, you know, get people in uh, Japan in people's minds, but in a quote-unquote non-threatening right. manner. So it, it was interesting. There was a great book I read at one point. It's kind of a little bit of a tangent, but um, and that's what we're all about. Yeah, I'm blanking on what the title was. I'll have to we'll, we'll put it on the thing. Um, but I read a great book once about the history of the North Pacific. Like it's not really written from a U.S. point of view or from Japan point of view, but it's a North Pacific history. Mm. And as sort of a um, whatever, anyway, as sort of like a tool for telling the whole story, he has major char- historical characters from each country sitting around the table and like hanging out and talking. And in each kind of were they podcasting at the same time? In, in each um, break in between, like actual historical chapters, you have them chatting. And um, Queen Kaahumanu, if that's the right name, I think it is. Queen Kaahumanu keeps asking, "So when do we get to the part where the Japanese take over Hawaii?" He's like, oh, we'll get there, we'll get there. And then finally the very last chapter is like the 1980s current, quote, unquote. And right. he starts talking about, you know, like buying Waikiki golf courses and whatever. Um, but interesting. Anyway, no, but it was just, just that's sort of interesting, like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. There were a couple things um, about her talk that I can't fault her for not elaborating on because you know she, her work is something else. She's talking about soft power, but there were a couple things that I, I found really, really interesting that um, I think is worth sort of continuing the conversation, right? One is that Sanrio has this brilliant business model, mm. and you know she briefly mentioned, but, but the idea that they have products for people right. with Two dollars to spare. Mm-hmm. Buying the little the yogurt cups sure. you showed me, right? Sure. Apparently, Hawaii has Hello Kitty yogurt cups, which is awesome. But <laughs> yes. um, and then you know people with thousands of dollars to spare, like with Louis Vuitton Hello right. Kitty bags, yeah. and this brilliant, brilliant business model that that allows them to have that. That, really that no matter what your soft. budget is, you can buy in. Right. You can be part of the club with right. a Hello Kitty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not just budget, but also uh, as you were pointing out, as mm-hmm. Ali was pointing out. The fact that you know all kinds of things that some companies would shy away from mm-hmm. being involved with, but Sanrio puts it out as a fish. Oh, go ahead and say it, like vibrators. <laughs> I was going to get there. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say like vibrators and thongs, <laughs> and not just thongs, but thongs that may or may not be for both gay women or no, gay men and women. Yeah, we're still trying to figure. Hello, out Kitty what, takes on a whole new meaning. <laughs> still trying to figure out what the zipper was for. Right. <laughs> And you can leave that in. Yeah. <laughs> if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I mean, it's 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 true though, because if for you know many of our our, our listeners either live in Japan or have lived in Japan, and, and, and when you're in Japan and you see it, Hello Kitty is marketed on some goods mm-hmm. that are obviously for kids. You know, mm-hmm. my my kids, my my daughter has a little Hello Kitty table that's kid size. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's that's for a child. That's really for you. Um. <laughs> Shh! Don't blow my secret. No, um, and but then there's other things like you know underwear and vibrators mm-hmm. and things that are certainly not marketed for kids. Mm-hmm. Even beyond that, even just like like the punk Hello Kitty. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah. You know goods or the uh, the those you, the, the, the ones you see here with like the nerdy glasses and the right, I, which yeah. I never saw in Japan, but they see them here in Hawaii. I also like the personal the personalized. Hello Kitty is the one you, you, oh, yeah. you the, Reach, the ones in the books right yeah right, so right. the different regions yeah they're on Hello Kitty yeah um, I, yeah we were we were talking about that I was talking about my uh, um, they they sell you know phone straps and mm-hmm. different goods from every region like you go like two cities over they'll have another different one um, 
and some of them were that, that was incredible. Yeah, my well, wife, my wife has one where uh, it's uh, it's Hello Kitty in a horse costume. That's one of my favorites. And <laughs> is that Kumamoto? In Kum- from Kumamoto, where <laughs> horse meat is a very popular yeah. delicacy. Oh, sure, yeah. So it's Hello Kitty in a horse costume eating a plate of basashi, <laughs> which is raw horse meat. <laughs> And that's weird, just weird so odd on so many levels. I, yeah, I, I have a friend who works for the racetrack, uh-huh. and I, I suggested to her that this exists, and she she didn't talk to me for quite a while. Yeah, that's, 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 but yeah. Or maybe that was just because um, I actually tried the massage. <laughs> but the, the, the thing about it is, 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 you know, like you said, Ali, it's, it, it, they do not only market to different levels of economic availability but different mm-hmm. levels of sophistication right. different levels of age different mm-hmm. I mean even different interest I, I can tell yeah. you picture some of these um, what do they call them Re- Rekijo Rekishijo yeah. mm-hmm. some the, of these the girls who are really girls. into history oh, yeah. buying like <coughs> Hello Kitty dressed up as Date Masamune yes <laughs> or whatever yes I, I, yeah. I, I'm almost tempted to buy that yeah. <laughs> the, uh, I, I especially like I think I was mentioning yesterday that the um, Hello Kitty dressed up as Shotoku Taishi mm-hmm. um, she has Two hige, putatsu no hige, the the cat whiskers and also Shotoku Taishi's beard. Nice. <laughs> that's I don't know. The old woman who was selling them to me was like, "Futatsu no hige ga imasu." Yeah, no, that's that's. There's, there's, uh, you get two hige for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, I mean, you, you travel anywhere in Japan, and only I for sale at Hoyoji. But, but that goes back to kind of the point about it being so ubiquitous that you almost lose sight of it when you're in Japan of it being a quote-unquote Japanese thing because it's just everywhere and you either take it or leave it you know it's not something that all Japanese people are into Mm -hmm. by any means so you know then you see it outside and it's like I I mean I think I see more Hello Kitty stuff here in Hawaii than I did Mm. (laughs) on a normal basis in Japan Mm -hmm. Mm. but anyway that was the first talk. Okay. That was interesting. So that was basically the, the keynote or pl- what was it called? Plenary? Plenary? Plenary speaker. Plenary. I am the But, yeah. Okay. But Yano, Yano's very good at, Dr. Yano is very good at um, bringing, I mean, she's, she really focuses on bringing like random fun in, like the kind of like, oh, isn't this wacky? It's from Japan. It's crazy and wacky. But then she talks about it in a very um, <laughs> eloquent, very well-spoken, you know, a, a right. serious scholarly way. Yeah, you, you can tell that, I mean, and she said that she wanted to just go ahead and finish writing the book just to, so that she could move on to something else because she has obviously so much that she's gathered over the years that she, her the way she was speaking, it would be like, Wow, let's throw this out, and then and then the next she's on to the next thing and throwing something else out, and then and then the next thing. It's you, like it's hard to process almost. You could tell at, at the Obama opening also. She was just like, "Isn't it crazy that they have this thing? And isn't it crazy that they have this thing?" <laughs> and that's basically like the entire appeal of the thing. But mm. then you you know, but then after this, you sort of analyze it discursively. And right. Right. A lot of very interesting things to say. So sounds like she'd be really good on the Home Shopping Network. <laughs> and then take a look at this thing. Can you believe it? 1999. <laughs> but she would move a lot of Hello Kitty thongs. We'll just say that. Um, so does that cover the first? I don't think I've uh, ever seen yeah. her present and not wear a t-shirt related to what she was presenting. Mm. I thought it was really funny that she was wearing a Hello Kitty t-shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because funny. the previous time I saw her, she was wearing an I Love Obama t-shirt. Mm. It was pretty awesome. Nice. Yeah, I was sad I didn't get one. They They, they gave, like... I love Obama t-shirts, I love Obama neckties, we have all these things. This is the Obama uh, location rather than president, right? So you can be classy. No, it's, it's, it has a picture of his face on it, but it's from <laughs> the city of Obama. In That's Bukuri. so weird. But they gave all of these things as like a present from the city of Obama to mm. Maya Satoru. Uh. 
who's um, President Obama's sister. Okay. And she was like, I don't really need any I Love Obama merchandise <laughs> that I'm going to wear. And they were like, you should give it to your brother. Okay, I'll give it to Barry. Like, <laughs> I'll give it to Barry. <laughs> it's just, he can have his face on his neck. Anyway. On a related note, I have a Barack and Miss Prime t-shirt. Oh, that's awesome. <gasps> Isn't awesome. that great? That, that's fantastic. That reminded me of it. That's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and this the showing uh, exhibit includes some American stuff too, like Spider Man beats Barack Obama. Mm, and stuff like that. Mm. Hmm. Uh, so, shall we move on to the uh, first session? Yeah, what else? Sure. Shall yeah. I think you and I went to the to the this one, the first one. I think you were there too, right? I uh, I was in Japan, and it's Green Roots. Okay, that was a different one. So, oh. well, then we were all in different ones. I guess we were. Uh, well, but then Wait. I then I did see uh, Kurosawa's Seven oh, right, Samurai: The Roving yeah. Bandits. Yeah. yeah. Um, which would be um, interesting. I'm not sure that I have anything really to talk. Well. Which ones would you like to talk about? Well, why don't we just start at, uh, we can start at the ones that we saw first. Um, Actually, I think I, because you know, you were talking about soft power and the the Mm -hmm. Japan trying to Mm -hmm. better its image in China. The first uh, seminar that we went to, the first speaker was, oh yeah, the uh, the politics of war memory and Sino-Japanese relations, negotiating the contents of war exhibitions, Carl Gustafsson from Lund University. Uh, Basically, he was talking specifically and only in regards to uh, exhibits, uh, museum exhibits in China Mm -hmm. that basically Mm -hmm. portrayed various Japanese things that went on there. And Mm -hmm. uh, he was basically, it was sort of the give and take between China and Japan. China, of course, wanting to show how badly they were victimized and Japan wanting to sort of balance it, you know, sort of remove as much of the propaganda side of things as possible Mm -hmm. while still, you know, and of course they can portray what actually happened, but try to lessen the effect of the propaganda. So they'd say, well, instead of adding, you know, please take out these photos that don't actually depict what you're talking about, or remove these wax figures that show the horrible experiments the Japanese did on, yeah. uh, you know, your citizens, or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm. So uh, it was kind of the sort of the give and take between China and Japan. Like before uh, the Olympics went to Beijing, China actually made some concessions with some of their museums to remove certain things huh. that painted would have painted Japan in, in a really poor light. Hmm. Interesting. But okay. it, it was basically just the uh, museums. He really didn't fo- focus on anything other than yeah. sort of the interplay between the Japanese and the, but basically the politics of the sort of the Japanese-related museums in China. But he was focusing mainly on the politics, and it was very interesting that he was talking about some of the individual instances when Japanese uh, uh, government officials, you know, had certain quotes, certain things that they said about what to do with this. But I was a little bit, um, and it's a perfectly valid approach, and it was very interesting. I was kind of hoping for more direct analysis of the exhibitions themselves. Mm-hmm. How are they laid out? What do they include? What do they not include? How do they phrase the labels? So, and as so a museum study student, I was kind of hoping for. But so he clearly it. didn't come from a, a a background with. For example, museum experience. Yeah, he or wasn't coming from museum studies point of okay. view. I don't yeah, think. I don't know what his area of expertise was actually. Sure. So this is, this is why I said you should have been in the one that I went to. Oh yeah, because that's well, what they did. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. But I mean, he didn't show any pictures of how things are displayed at all. Mm. But he, he just talked about sort of the political back and forth, sure. and, <coughs> which yeah. was again, you know, it was very interesting. But, and and also, I think he did make one point that I thought was especially interesting when he said something about how. The official, the Japanese point of view was always like, this photo is not good, 
this photo's not good, and like picking out individual things mm-hmm. with no real discussion of like, let's overhaul the entire exhibit. Sure. Right, sh- they were basically focusing on, rather than overhauling it and trying yeah. to change hmm. the content, they were just saying, well, we'll do something about this particular piece or right. this particular hmm. piece. Yeah. I mean, if you look at, for example, um, I mean, at Bishop Museum right now, which is the, um, it's a museum here in Honolulu, it's the largest collection of Pacific artifacts in the world, and they're exhibition of non-Hawaiian Polynesian cultures or all Pacific cultures has not really been re, uh, redone in like at least 30 years or something I think I might be I don't know. but anyway let's say roughly 30 years and just I don't know if anybody in particular was speaking up against it in terms of activists or whatever but from a you know museum studies point of view from a post-colonial point of view it was it needed to go mm. and so rather than saying this one's not good that that one's not good this label that that phrase they they've closed the entire thing and they're mm. going to reopen it in a couple years completely you know redone right. hmm. and they just did the same thing to hawaii hall a few years back so sort of overhauling it to really completely let's you know do this from, from the start anew so i don't know i, I just it, it was interesting to me that i think that and i think that that's of uh you didn't go into too much detail about it but i feel like that's somehow indicative, I kind of get the impression of, I don't know, a particularly Japanese approach or, mm. or a particularly different approach than what we might expect or desire. Yeah, basically it was, I'll also mentioned uh, the, the role of patriotic schooling in China. Basically China using Japan as the bad guy as part of their patriotic uh, indoctrination mm-hmm. into, I guess, this is what we are as Chinese and the Japanese are the enemy, we're the good guys. Using Japan as the other. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and that's continuing. And so Japan is trying to, uh, at least on the, the museum front, trying to sort of combat that, I guess. Huh. Yeah, um, I went to uh, a session that was called Public Spaces, Winners, Losers, and the Pacific War, Remembering Japan. And, and um, I'm not going to talk about the, the third one because it was... It was okay, it was, but it was really unrelated. The first two were, were very directly related to each other and very related to what you were talking about because it's two um, researchers who work in uh, Australia, uh, mm-hmm. Matthew Allen of uh, University of Wollongong, I think that is pronounced, and uh, Rumi Sakamoto of uh, University of Auckland. Well, I guess she's in New Zealand, but they work together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe they said that they were putting out a book together. Mm-hmm. But one of them focused on, Matthew Allen focused on the Australian War Memorial in, um, I guess it's it's in, you know, presumably S- in Sydney or something. I'm forgetting if it's in Sydney or Melbourne. But, um, but he, he focused on that and did a little bit of comparison with uh, Yushukan, which is the museum at Yasukuni Shrine mm-hmm. in Tokyo, mm-hmm. which um, I'm sure most people are listening would be familiar with as the site of quote unquote sh- war criminals. Yes, it's the shrine where it memorializes or enshrines the the dead from um, Japanese wars, uh, which includes the Pacific War, World War Two, and it includes some individuals who were tried and convicted as war criminals. Um, and of course, is very controversial for lots and lots of political reasons. So she focused on 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 that one, um, but. I, I thought it was really interesting uh, listening to, to Matthew Allen talk about the Australian uh, one and then comparing it because he focuses on the issue of POWs and the fact that the Australian War Memorial highlights POWs as the ultimate in supreme sacrifice because of the, the terrible treatment they received when they were captured by the Japanese, you know, um, stories of like, uh, you know, out of 2,000 captured, 
you know, six of them lived, and 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 just these. So you go to the Australian War Memorial, and there's this huge section which documents all these experiences, shows pictures of these emaciated men who have have literally been through hell, and and highlight just highlights their experiences as an example of the, the self-sacrifice mm-hmm. that Australian soldiers um, went through during the war. And that's how this part of the museum uh, is, is constructed. Um, and he contrasts that with Yushukan, uh, the, the, you know, which looks, spends a lot of time on World War II, obviously, for obvious reasons, at, uh, you know, in the Japanese museum, and how POWs aren't mentioned at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and how that's a reflection of the, the wartime Japanese attitudes where self-sacrifice meant dying for your country and that was what was expected right and if you captured you failed and so that was not considered mm. self-sacrifice mm. Um, and hmm. and how in the in the roles of those interned many of the soldiers who were captured and there were minuscule numbers captured he, he I, I don't remember the exact numbers but he threw up statistics and it was like out of comparing uh, you know, soldiers killed versus soldiers captured, and it was like for every one Australian killed, there were five who were captured. For every like 120 Japanese killed, there was one Japanese who was captured. Wow. <laughs> so, um, you know, quite a big disparity there. And he said that those who were captured were officially listed as dead and entered into the, the roles, and many of them after the war chose to stay in Australia because they did not want to go back to Japan and be living ghosts. Not only just that, but they felt like I mean, you know, these were people who had been indoctrinated their whole life that dying for the emperor was what they were supposed to do, right? So they you know, they're in in this kind of middle ground where they're not really alive because their families think they're dead. They've been officially given, you know, locks of hair or whatever, you know, memorial, you know, thank you for your son's service to the emperor, etc. And so for them to go back, it would, not only would they have to face the, the, you know, shame of having been captured and all that, but they would have to confront their families who didn't realize that they were, that they they were dead. They, he, he gave an example, there was a, a big uh, prison where they had a lot of Japanese, um, soldiers who, and many of them, you know, there was like a thousand of them that attempted a mass breakout, and about 300 of them actually got out, and they weren't trying to get out and attack anyone, they weren't trying to get out and, uh, you know, cause problems for Australia, you know, things that you, that, that as a military officer, you know, myself, if I'm in that situation, I get out, and I want to raise as much hell as possible, because I'm, I'm trying to continue the war. These guys, they're, they're, they were dead. Mm. So they wanted to die, but they couldn't kill themselves. For he didn't explain whether that was a psychological thing or whether it was like they physically did not have the capability to, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, listeners can't see it, but I'm saying wrap a noose around my neck. <laughs> um, but so they did a mass breakout. So expecting because if it was a Japanese prison, right, they'd be machine kill. gunned down. Right. Well, some of them were sh- were were shot and killed trying to escape, but a lot of them made it out. And they, he said they, w- they weren't trying to, like, attack civilians or anything like that. They just waited out and, like, were like, okay, well, at some point, somebody's going to come and shoot me, so I'll just wait here until somebody does. And there was one that was, uh, that eventually did hang himself, a, a Japanese officer who did hang himself, and the family didn't find out until, like, a picture 
of him was released in like 1971 oh, no. that he had been they didn't even know that he'd been captured oh. um, so it just it, it, that was really interesting the different attitudes about POWs and so forth when, um, there, I feel like I don't know specific examples but I feel like I've heard of cases of Japanese being captured I don't know if it was in here in Hawaii during the Pearl Harbor attacks uh-huh. or if it was maybe in Okinawa but I feel like I've heard of Japanese being captured in like sort of this psychology or whatever this philosophy of like once you're captured you're, and 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 they they would they would flip sides and they would help the Americans. Um, I don't know of any particular stories about that uh, as far as the Japanese go. Like I've been um, defeated, you've got me. But mm. um, and, and, and my we'll, country will never take me back. Yeah, so we'll well, we'll try to stay. I don't know what the logic is out exactly, of but. contemporary politics, but I will mention that I have heard of that in regards to U.S. operations and capturing uh, you know, Islamic extremist terrorist members who, mm. well, I've, I've failed in my attempt to blow myself up and take you with me, so it doesn't matter what I do at this point, mm. so I might as well give you the information that you want. Hmm. Um, so, similar psychological yeah, aspect I of it, like but I've never heard of that. With, I, I wouldn't I doubt know. it. I would not doubt it. I mean, there was that um, one guy who crashed on Niihau during Pearl Harbor, yeah. and he he was not looking to help the Americans. Yeah, um, yeah I think he just he was killed, but uh, he was killed by the natives. Yeah, the but, um, um, in my in my own personal experience, I, I did have a um, experience where I when I was a college student in Japan, where I met a older Japanese gentleman, obviously older, um, who had been a zero pilot during the war hmm. and had been shot down. Uh, in the Central Pacific, and uh, was was picked up and captured by the U.S. Navy, and you know had attempted. He was tell- as he was, as I was talking to him, he was telling us about how he had tried to get out his sword to kill himself. Right. But because his his plane was going underwater and he was mm. trapped, you know, yeah, trapped in, he couldn't get his sword out. So he couldn't kill himself before the Navy came and uh, the U.S. Navy came and picked him up. But he was treated so well that it completely flipped him around in this um, I, I, mean, I have no idea whether he like then gave assistance to the Americans or whatever yeah, but um, the whole reason that we met him was we were, we were um, on a ferry going from Tokyo up to Hokkaido and he saw a bunch of American college students this is just old Japanese guy he's like you guys Americans? we're like yeah he's like come come hang out in my stateroom, not, you know, we were sleeping on little mats on the floor, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, come hang out in my stateroom, and, uh, you know, bought, like, a bunch of beer, and we're college students, we're like, don't have to sleep on the floor, beer? <laughs> cool. <laughs> so we go, ever. but in, in talking to him, and, and we asked him why he liked Americans so much, because he kept saying how much he liked America, he told us this story, and it's like, well, holy crap, you know, here he is, he, he considers himself dead, because he, and then they, they treat him and basically give him his life back. And, you know, so he, he was grateful mm-hmm. ever since. So, but yeah, in, anyway, and then, and then so the second um, presenter, uh, Rumi Sakamoto, was focusing more, you know, exclusively on Yushukan and, and its representation of Kamikaze as, you know, the ultimate sacrifice going out with the intention of, of dying and so forth. So those two dovetailed very nicely yeah. for obvious reasons and was really fascinating to see the differences in how, and then think about it in our own, you know, as, as Americans and how we focus on things. Uh, uh, Matt Allen had a uh, uh, funny comment where he's talking about the Australian War Museum and how um, going through it, you see that Australia won the war. 
there might be a little mention of America <laughs> and that they were sort of involved, <laughs> but you know, it's an Australian war museum, so that's what the focus is, sure. and, mm -hmm. um, you know, so forth. So it was just, uh, it was interesting and ties into, I don't know why those two weren't with the other. Mm. I don't know why they were not put in the same panel. That would have been really. Yeah, but um, the other one was on um, manga <laughs> interpretations of uh, Manchuria by a manga author who had grown up in wartime Manchuria uh, and his telling his recollections of, of you know his life through manga and it was okay but not nearly as interesting as the other two to me. So. Hmm. Uh, the first two I went to uh, were under the title Japan and its Green Roots and they, so the first one, it was this really really fabulous ethnographic research by this PhD student has spent, I think he said the last 10 years in Japan. Wow. And 10 years working on his PhD? No. <laughs> Thank the Lord, that'd be a long PhD. Oh um, he did his undergrad and his master's in Japan, and now he's working on his PhD. And he has been living with this rural community, and I think it's in Oita, I think, mm -hmm. but I don't quite remember. Um, he's, I think he's been living there for about two years, and the goal is he is sort of getting to know these village elders, mm. right? Or town elders, because I think it's a city now, or however it's classified. Right, right, I, mean, right. I think it was a town, but then kind of got eaten by a yeah. Yeah, city. So anyway, um, speaking with these village elders and recording and transcribing these village songs that the elders had come up with during the 60s when um, they started these huge sweeping agricultural reforms, right? Oh. So mm. like um, each village plants its own thing, whatever, there's a, there's a phrase for it, but of course I can't remember, he said a lot of things. Right, I think they're planting peaches or plums or... And they came up with these songs, right? So kind of working songs, songs that you sing in the field and, and kind of get you going and songs about the duties of a sister and the duties of a son and the duties of a mother and mm -hmm. the duties of a father and the duties of a government official and the duties of a night worker. Um, and speaking with the elders, he said he's learned that the generation after the elders, right? So this mid-generation knows some of the songs, but that the third generation, so people maybe my age or younger, right, so in early 20s or, or younger, have no idea that these songs existed. And mm. nobody's written them down. They're not written down anywhere. They're mm. just passed orally. And so he's been writing down all these songs and transcribing them, and it's this fabulous, really fascinating work. Um, and I, I mean, it's rural Japan is absolutely not my expertise in any respect, right? But it was fascinating to think about these kinds of sort of post-war traditions that almost sounded like communist China mm, or like mm. pre-communist China, right? Not 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 the same ideology at all, right? But right, the kind of right. like but work the, the group, right? The, well, the, the first thing I thought of was uh, Great Leap Forward, right? Yeah. Right. The the agricultural reforms and and things like that, and this fascinating kind yeah, of cultural I mean, happening that I don't think is really talked explored. about. Yeah. And to 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 for him to be doing this kind of work, writing down these songs that 
will probably have been lost or well, maybe will be lost. There was certainly a, a similar feeling in the post-war um, mm -hmm. because of how f far Japan had plummeted with, right. you know, the destruction and, um, you know, having to, uh, you know, there's, there's certainly this idea of having to sacrifice and work together mm -hmm. for the good of the nation as mm -hmm. far as rebuilding the economy right. and as far as doing all these other things. And this is where, you know, a lot of the whole, uh, you know, work until 2 a.m. And, and all that, that mm -hmm. the work ethic of the Sarariman comes from, mm -hmm. originally anyway, right. um, and so forth. So it's, it's interesting that, you know, because everything that I've read about it normally focuses mm -hmm. on business and industry right. and, mm -hmm. and industrialization and, and, yeah. and so forth as far as developing Japan and, right. and the Japanese economy. So it's interesting to see a similar attitude in the rural environment mm -hmm. and that they're, you know, developing these songs to help them work right. and be more productive. And right. uh, So that's interesting. Yeah, it's fabulous. Um, and then the, the second one that I went to in that session was Farming in Japan, Cultural Icon Under Siege. And it was this, this really overarching paper that this guy explained, he wrote, about the trajectory of farming in Japan in maybe the last century, I can't remember how far he went back. He, he briefly touched on things like peasant uprisings in, in you know, 1500s and no. such, but um, mostly he talked about how farming has sort of undergone a cultural crisis, right, mm -hmm. and an economic crisis within the last decade or couple decades and how there is at once things to be to feel kind of doomed about and things to be hopeful for so there's a lot of this like the fleet the the flight of people from these rural areas into the cities that he, not he talked, taking over the right right he talked about you know farming. newer generations leaving the farming communities right so nobody to nobody to make the food yeah, first of right, all right. um he talked about farm subsidies, which he said were at 800% still. So price support for, for I think it was at least rice. Yeah, it explains why you're, you're paying like $120 for like 10 pounds of rice or whatever. Mm. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, that is, that is a huge, huge issue. And he said that the government, I think, is, is taking steps to fix that and to mm. lower it. But you have all these other issues, like you said, the people people moving into the cities or, or a little bit more urban areas. Um, the fact that a lot of farmers are part-time now. Um, so, you know, they, they still farm, but they do other things as supplementary right. income, um, maybe because, you know, they're, they're elderly and they, they can't farm mm. full-time without the, the staff that they used, quote-unquote staff, you know, family or whatever that yeah. they used yeah, to have. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he, you know, he did have some sort of things that we can be hopeful for. He talked about hobby farming, how big hobby farming has become. Mm -hmm. So, you know, c city folk who who are like, oh, I want to be green and hippie and go, yeah. you know, b so buy a plot of land. So growing tomatoes on their... Uh, right, on their that, or like buying a small plot of land somewhere and oh. building a community garden or something. But they're even having, um, I don't remember exactly how it works, but they, they have like really, really tiny plots of land, mm. like literally like, I don't know, like maybe like a couple feet square. Right along the major streets in right in the middle of like Shibuya or something sure. and it's really really popular in the last year or two mm -hmm. I, I've heard about it I don't know for young women maybe college mm -hmm. age women to like I don't know like buy a, buy a plant and right. plant it 
on the side of the street in Shibuya. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't remember how it works, whether they have to like buy that square or I don't know how it works, but. Right. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's hobby farming, there is, he, he, he said that Japan is, is way, way far behind the U.S. in terms of organic farming. Right. Right, so um, certified organic which of course means that you have to pass all these really stringent mm. tests about whether it's organic or not. So there's not a lot of organic farming, but they do stress local foods. And it, of course, it's, it's a lot easier in Japan to have local foods than it oh, is in the U.S. to have local yeah, foods. It's especially, almost necessary. It's almost <laughs> necessary um, versus, you know, of course, in Minnesota, I'm so yeah. accustomed to eating bananas, but bananas do not grow in Minnesota. And so, right. um, you know, the strong imports right. and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's funny. You go to a grocery store um, in uh, Japan and sometimes, some places, they would have a picture of the farmer. Mm-hmm. On the like the spinach or whatever, mm-hmm. and uh, I mean it was like you know picked by this guy <laughs> at this farm. Right. And, um, and, and certain regions being famous for certain goods has, mm-hmm. goes back. I mean, yeah, it, it goes back centuries and centuries. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm looking at Edo period books that mm. are explicitly mentioning like whatever Issei crabs and mm. Uji tea and whatever. Yeah, and that's 1700s. But I wouldn't be surprised if it goes back much much further. So right. it's, it's a very long standing tradition of regional local foods right. uh, as, you know as opposed to like here in Hawaii well I mean native Hawaiian culture is a whole other story but you know we have like we have a restaurant called town that I still haven't been to mm. that um, been twice it's great yeah that supposedly is like all local foods mm. and locally grown and it feels very neo yuppie to me it's like sure. a very new idea in America as far as I maybe not brand new but brand new in the way that it's packaged today it, it, depend, it depends on the way that it, it's presented town is actually um, just to throw a plug in, because I've been there two or three times, and it's, it's fantastic food. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the the way that they market it is a little uh, pretentious. Isn't the right word, but it's like you know, <laughs> oh, we make an extra point of it all being grown here locally in Hawaii and, mm. and whatever, which is good because my general philosophy is if I can get something, you know, that's grown half a mile away from me, that's probably going to be better than something that was shipped 3,000 miles. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> Digression. I th- Sorry. I, th- I mean, I, I think ultimately, no, I think that these are, I think that it's related to the, to the yeah. conversation talking about local food. I think ultimately, um, the, the thing that I really took away from that second presentation was it got me thinking about the ways in which Japanese agriculture and the the needs of a Japanese population and, and the size of the country of Japan are so drastically different from mm. what the U.S. is dealing yes. with, right? Yeah. Like, local food and hobby farming is not a solution for the U.S. It's right. not. It can't be. Too big, too many different kinds of diverse needs, right? Right, right. Um, and so, at first, I was like, hobby farming, that's never going to yeah. solve a country's food crisis. But... For somewhere like Japan, and I'm just speculating, of course, but for somewhere like Japan, maybe hobby farming and local farming and locally grown food or locally produced food is a legitimate, you know, economically sound kind of solution to the fact that they import almost all their stuff now. It would be interesting to go back and see if there's any, you know, sort of documentation or anything about uh, Victory Gardens in World War II, mm. um, which was where people were encouraged to grow their own vegetables mm-hmm. because 
you know, there was no gasoline and right. rubber and all that to use in the transportation of food from uh-huh. from one location to another. So it was like, look, grow your own vegetables. And they called it a victory garden because you're supporting the war effort mm. by not, yeah, yeah. you know, stressing the supply system right. and, and forcing that. So it'd be interesting to see if there's any statistics on how that, mm. you know, affected Right, it's maybe a, a tradition that's just continued. Right, um, and and then comparing that to what they're doing in Japan now. Sure. And, 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 so that that would be an avenue. But The only critique I have of it, and this I think is my last thought, I even took notes on this one, because somebody lent me a pen. My pen exploded on the plane. Oh. But it was, yeah, it was mm-hmm. unfortunate. But um, the last kind of note I had was he mentioned that, oh, they're starting to use more of their own beef and they're having more cattle farms and things like that. But, but that, that's kind of exciting that they have their own beef. But, I mean, if, if you know anything about pollution and what animals pollute the most and the production of what kinds of yeah. meats pr- yeah. pollute the most, it's cattle, yeah, cattle. it's yeah. beef. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's... it's Oh, Which great. Why we should eat more basashi. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think, I think it's great that they're using their own cows now, but that is not a long-term viable solution for, for meat. But yeah, no, that was my only, my only real critique of what he was saying he's hopeful for. So yeah, under the heading of documenting war experiences, uh, the, the third uh, presentation was called Kurosawa's Seven Samurai and Roving Bandits. Are the farmers really safe? This was Arthur Trey Fleischer from Metropolitan State College of Denver. Uh, the title was a little misleading. Um, I, I think everyone who went in was kind of thinking <laughs> that it was going to be something more either... More film studies. Either film or maybe samurai history or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was actually just using it to sort of illustrate his own economic theory. At least he was yeah. upfront about it. Yeah, no, the, first, the first 30, 30 seconds he said, this is not really about Kurosawa. Yeah, ah. yeah. Although, although, and I ran into him the previous day or earlier in the day, mm-hmm. um, and he told me explicitly this is not going to be about Kurosawa, <laughs> but I was still kind of hoping that it was going to be about like actual 16th century mm. history mm-hmm. right. and not sort of abstract theory. But to sort but of hit the on abstract the, theory was still very interesting. Right. Yeah, the actual theory itself was essentially, I think, I don't know if he called it the bandit theory. But I, don't even, is, I don't even know if it's his theory, th- right? Is it? I'm not sure. I was kind of under the impression that it was his theory. Okay. Yeah, what, what he seemed to indicate when I was talking to this, and, and full disclosure, I was not actually at this, so I did not hear what he was talking about, but he said, he, he mentioned that it was, that he, he, somebody else, I think he said somebody else um, had an idea, and he just kind of, he, he built off of it. Oh, okay. Mm. So. so there was an idea out there, and he basically... Created a theory, right? Right. Goes along Something with that. like that. Yeah, I, I think. But yeah. Well, basically, the, my understanding of the whole thing was sort of it, he was coming at it from an economic theory point of view, sort of like you have game theory, this and that, sort of an economic right. theory that can be applied to many different situations, not necessarily just history or what have you, but various situations. But essentially, it was the bandit theory, I guess. And he kind of says you have roving bandits and you have stationary bandits, and in the context of Japan, well. He didn't really put it in context. He kind of just left it as a theory. Right. But essentially what it comes down to is if you're a village and you, there's roaming bandits, they'll, they'll come, they'll take your stuff, and they'll leave. You're worse off for it. They're better off, uh, but, and they're not actually contributing anything. So enough of these bandits keep hitting you. Eventually you get to the point where I don't want to produce any more rice because bandits are just going to keep taking it every single season. But then 
you have the stationary bandits, which would be like, we're going to be here, we're going to leech off of you, but we'll protect you from the other bandits. So they kind of serve a purpose in that right. yeah. they protect you, even though they're kind of leeching off of you. And this, I, I believe it's sort of the, like a dictatorship mm -hmm. concept is sort of the stationary bandit. Well, just um, like in uh, Kitana Takeshi's Zatoichi, there's stationary bandits who are extorting people for protection money. Right. As opposed to the roving bandits of Seven Samurai. Right, right. And so he was sort of putting it in a, in a p political science perspective of roving, although I, I guess he didn't really put the roving bandits in, in a, any sort of perspective, but the stationary bandits would kind of be like the, uh, the dictatorship or the, the, the bandit, the protection racket, I guess, mafia protection racket or something like that. Sure. And he also did touch on the sort of the 16th century concept of, of daimyo, various daimyo who are sort of like stationary bandits themselves where they, they, they have control of the land, they, they sort of are responsible for the protection of the people, and in return, they get all the resources. Right. Well, if you think about it, um, that's really how a lot of the Sengoku Daimyo got their start, was if they didn't start as a descendant of a Shugo Daimyo family, mm. and they didn't start as like a deputy of a Shugo Daimyo, then they started as just somebody who was local, but had lots of strength, yeah. you know, had, was Some, able to get yeah. people to work for them. And, you know, if you want to classify that as banditry, because they were stronger than other people and could take the resources, then I could certainly see a case for it. So I, I'm interested to um, get a hold of that paper and, and read it, and then I think that's something that, that kind of ties in. When, when I was talking to him this morning about it, it kind of ties into the paper I did on... Uh, uh, daimyo as individual uh, political states mm -hmm. and uh, and their uh, relation, you know, international relations with each other. So um, that uh, you know, it'd be interesting to to match those two up and see where that shakes out. So I think that's one that once we get the copies of the paper, we should sit down and read them and, and do another podcast. Yeah, sounds like a plan. Yeah, I mean, it it was so theoretical. Right. Let's yeah. hit the table yeah. some more. Yeah. There was very very little application. Right. And and, and uh. it even got to the point where he was wrapping up and I, I kept thinking in my head like why how, how does this yeah. Yeah, relate? how can it be applied or relate to And I think I'm sure that in the paper it is there's yeah. so many more concrete examples, but I think that even trying to explain a, a theory of economics, right? Because that's basically what yeah, this is. Yeah. A theory of economics to a non-economist and a group of non-economists is hard in and of itself. So I don't fault him for that. But it, it was, I mean, it was very theoretical. And so I, I have really nothing more to say other than that it was an interesting theory. And I would be, I should email him for the paper as well. Yeah. That, that brings up an interesting, I'm sorry, I just stepped on you. I was just going to say, there's, there were a couple more points that he made that I thought were, I mean, just as long as we're summarizing what he said. Mm -hmm. um, um, I mean, uh, just about the solitary bandits. He was talking about sort of economic, uh, you know, decision-making and whatever. If you are a stationary bandit and you are relying upon these villages to support you, right. then you're not going to take as much in each season, and you're going to have much more incentive to, protect, to actually protect these people and not just charge them for protection. Which, oh, which, that's you, right. which you kind of mentioned. About yeah, and he was actually right. also mentioned the what what as a bandit or a stationary bandit, what you feel your political lifespan is. Right. If right. you think you're going to be in charge for a long time, 
you'll you'll really stretch it out. You'll take less. Yeah. If you think that they could overthrow you at any moment, you're going to try to take as much resources as possible. Right, right. And then he, he shifted kind of into a slightly more political side, referring to um, Arab Spring and, and, and sort of whatever, and talking about, you know, as a, as a bandit or as a dictator, you know, sort of like oppressing... And this is where I got confused and lost, because he was talking about oppressing people more in mm-hmm. order to... If the people don't have enough resources to rise up against you, then they won't rise up against you. Whereas if you give them more freedoms, then they will use those freedoms to rise up against you, which is kind of counter the... Um, I think it wasn't the, so much freedoms as resources. Resources. If, if you give them too much resources while taking, while yeah, right. but, holding you know, political is, power, they're yeah, more likely to rise the, up against but I think you. That this because is, they have the resources to do so. Right, because they have the resources to rise up against you. So you have to try to oppress them and deny them the resources to rise up against you. But this is kind of counter the conventional wisdom of if you give them enough resources to feel happy even though you're still ruling them, then, you know, I mean... Yeah, I can see that too. Right? There's a certain... There's a certain slice of Chinese society today that's very affluent, doing very well, living a very modern life, well, and therefore yeah. they don't care that we, their government we were, we were is dictatorial and oppressive. When we were talking so about it, kind of counter what he was breakfast arguing. this morning. You know, it's by no means universal, but for we we were actually talking about. Uh, he was asking me my opinions on North Korea, and we were talking about it, and and he made the point that. Sometimes bad policies are good for dictators. Oh yeah, because it prevents anybody from having those resources that that they can to sure, uh, sure. you know use well, to then overthrow on one situation. Well, it, it does. There's two ends of the spectrum. You know, China and North Korea. We on opposite ends of the spectrum. China, for all the flack we give it about their you know limitations on democracy and information and and so forth, they do relatively have a. Um, you know, individual citizens have relative freedom to explore and do things and have jobs and have, you know, have wealth. accumulate wealth right. and so forth to the point where they have enough of it that they, they uh, you know, this is gross oversimplification, obviously, but, you know, the majority at this point don't feel the need to push the government out oh, yeah. in order to get more. On the opposite end of the spectrum uh, that we were talking about this morning is, is, is North Korea, where information is so controlled and access to resources is so controlled that the average citizen doesn't even know that that there is something that better. there is something better mm-hmm. and, and and or how do you yeah we that? i mean we diverged for about half an hour on that topic and all <laughs> it's like we're getting into false consciousness i won't i won't almost yeah <laughs> but but anyway but anyway so, but interesting so stuff. there were definitely some very interesting points but i think we'll we'll yeah. wait till we get that the actual paper and yeah. Okay, so uh, that pretty much covers our coverage for essentially the first day or so, give or take, of the conference. And next episode, we'll cover the, the second half. And so, um, again, this was Chris, Travis, Nate, and Ali. And since you're sort of a temporary host here, uh, in case anyone oh. wants to... Uh, <laughs> I didn't agree to this. <laughs> <laughs> in case anyone wants to get a hold of you... Uh, you can throw up Twitter, uh, website or blog, to, or whatever. Uh, yes. Um, so I am on Twitter. My username is, do I have to write this out? M-N-E-M-O-S-Y-N-E. So it's the Greek mother of muses, in case you How do you pronounce it? I have no idea. <laughs> and then Kurai, which is dark. So K-U... 
R A I, which is not Greek, Japanese. Not, not to be confused. Um, so that's my Twitter name. Um, I tweet about some of the research I'm doing, uh, as well as my cat Carl. So check that out. But I'm also at the University of Minnesota. Um, so. If you want to get a hold of me for research questions or for questions about papers and stuff, um, just contact the U of M Communication Studies Department. All right. Okay. okay. Cool. So uh, I guess that's it for today. So uh, thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week. And as usual, you can contact us at That's true, Twitter. yeah. If you, if you want to reach us, you can reach us all at all those normal places. At all the normal At okay. Samurai Archives on Twitter. That I don't uh, mess with because I'm too old. <laughs> Uh, samurai, samurai podcast at gmail.com uh, the website all that stuff okay. that you know well yes. and so that's it for right. this week